Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> you're reading about um, them choosing the brightest and the best looking. I think I heard a voice over here go, that's me. <laughs> Is that you, Bill? <laughs> Speaking of over here, it's so good to see Jesse and Tara Krager and your family with you today. They're, um, they're here. Um, it was hell. That's who I thought. This is their last Sunday here, by the way. They were, it's been a while. It's because of COVID and stuff. And you're moving to Arizona, right? Yep. Yeah. Next week? Yeah. Well, Godspeed. And uh, be sure and say goodbye to them before they leave and before they take off. We, were just, it was, we had a nice time of pleasure with you here with us and just bringing your spirit and your family with us. It was just a real joy. So uh, we're going to pray this morning and uh, I'm going to pray a little bit differently. I, I thought we would, I would kind of just lead you in a prayer uh, this, this morning and uh, give you time to, to pray in some silence. And so if you just follow with me, I'll be reading and I'll be uh, leading us in first person and just pray these prayers with me and give you some silence to pray and, and spend some time with God. So let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I, I intentionally pause from all the doing uh, in my life to welcome your presence with me right now. I set aside all those rhythms of work and world to set myself wholly apart towards you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are worthy of my complete attention and my utter adoration. I simply want to be with you today as I become aware of the distractions in my mind. I set them aside one by one so that I can focus on resting in you. Today I remember that God's original plan for humanity was not to achieve great things or acquire more things, but a simple invitation to walk and talk with you each day. You say in Genesis, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I take a moment to pause and remember that the only thing God desires in this moment is my presence in his presence. When Jesus meets Bartimaeus on the road to Jericho, he asks a simple question, what do you want me to do for you? I imagine Jesus asking me that same question this morning, and I take a few, minute, few moments to respond. When Jesus spoke to the crowds, he said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I take a few minutes now to listen to what Jesus might want to say to me, whether a picture, a phrase, or a Bible verse that will bring encouragement or comfort to my soul.
now turning my prayers outward. I name someone I know who really needs to feel God's presence and experience God's rest today, and so I pray for them now. Father, this morning we want to offer a special prayer for our moms today. We are grateful for them. We are grateful for the voice that we heard before we could even see. We are grateful for the eyes that first looked on us. We are thankful for her nurturing us, giving, then giving us space to grow older and independent. We thank you for the moms that know us inside and out, who have sacrificed in order to launch us into the world. We thank you for the trust that they have in us as we have gotten to be adults. And we thank you for the opportunity to care for them as they have grown older. We thank you for memories, both good and bad, that you have used to shape us. Father, we also recognize that Mother's Day is not always a celebration for everyone. We remember those who have lost their moms and uh, the loss that just uh, stays with us for the rest of our days. We pray for those regrets that we might have had for moms and kids. We pray for those who want to be mothers, but for a variety of reasons they are not. And so we pray for hope and healing in their lives. We pray for those who are pregnant but don't want to be. We pray that you melt their hearts. And Father, we, with joy and pain, we thank you for the mothers who uh, around the world, knowing that we have hope in the day that when all tears will be dried and all pains will be healed and all regrets will be erased and for those sweet moments that we have with our moms and we have with our children that those moments will be enriched even more so in your presence and so father we also thank you for being our parent and the goodness that you have shown us is just as we sang this morning and we give this time to you now in the name of our lord jesus Amen. Last week, we, are, um, we started a Life in the Spirit. We're still continuing our, our series, our long series on the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is kind of sometimes either the overemphasized person of the Trinity and sometimes he's the forgotten person of the Trinity. Uh, so I thought we were kind of spending a little bit more time on the Holy Spirit than we have on, on in other areas. And last week I shared about a uh, revival that, that I experienced in high school in my local church, the local Methodist church, and I called it, for lack of a better word, a charismatic revival. And it kind of started kind of within the, the, the youth group, and by uh, youth leaders we were encouraged to, um, to seek the Holy Spirit, to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this second experience. We were coached on, on praying in tongues and speaking in tongues, and and uh, all those kinds of things. We, we, um, we, it, was a, it was a movement that I think was just very, very powerful. But, um, uh, and then I talked about a pastor, a youth pastor, who shared with us what he thought uh, about all this stuff. And he said that he took 1 Corinthians 13 and took that passage where it says, you know, in, in, we, in, in prophecies they will be done away, and tongues they will cease, and in knowledge they will be done away. 
And when the perfect comes, we, we right now we prophesy in part, we know in part, but when the perfect comes, all the partial will, will, will be done away. And he said the perfect for him was the Bible. And uh, that, that means that all these things had ceased. And he, he, this guy mentored me. I, he's smarter than me. I love him. He's the guy who, who married Sue and me in, the, in this, our marriage ceremony. Uh, and that stuck in my head. And I kind of tucked it away in my brain. But I always struggled with it, thinking that just doesn't make sense to me that he's talking about love. And then all of a sudden he introduces this new topic of the perfect, the, the canon, the closed canon, which I'm not even sure was in Paul's mind. And so I kind of was confused in all this stuff. But I, I really felt like this was, this was you know, God's movement. But I went into the, the college, and then later on, and, and my life was just kind of up and down. Uh, with you know, One day it would be, I'd had this great peace and personal experience with God, and then the next day there would be nothing. You know? And uh, what I didn't share last week, because I was saving it for this week, I didn't share all the excesses of that movement. And I didn't share the the um, enormous amount of spiritual pride that came in that movement. Because the church began to divide after that. And uh, it was kind of divided between this one group, these people who, uh, who we went to concerts and Bible studies and saw all kind of manifestations, and, and these, we prayed in tongues and, and, and had a prayer language and stuff, and we kind of joked about our favorite hymn was Charles Wesley's hymn, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I want to lower this a little bit. That was our hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. That was kind of our hymn. And, we, and then there were these people who didn't. And you got, got this feeling that uh, those who spoke in tongues and all this stuff, we were kind of this spiritual elite. And uh, we kind of knew more than everybody else. And we were closer to God than everyone else. And uh, the other people, well, they just weren't enlightened yet. Or they just weren't ready for it yet. And it's kind of like conspiracy theories today, you know, that... that that I've got this sort of secret knowledge that, that I really know what's going on, you know, and, and it kind of makes us feel special. Well, that's what it was like. And it was uh, an enormous amount of spiritual pride. And so with all this kind of, I still believe it was a movement of the Holy Spirit, but with it came a bunch of exaggerated activities as well as, as incredible sin. And so you had this kind, of, this kind of mixture. And like I said, it, it became up and down. I'd have this one day, you know, where I'd be really close to God, and other days, and the next day, it was just maybe, maybe nothing. And so when I got to college, I kind of thought I would apply the scientific method to this and try to figure out what worked, you know, what worked for me to have a, this close feeling, this close peace with God, and what didn't work. And then I got to the mission field and realized it was still going on, and I wasn't the only one. Uh, one of my colleagues had hurt his back, and he was basically bedridden or couch-ridden. And uh, he called me one day, and he said, hey, can you come by, you know, visit for a little while? And I said, sure. So, so we came by, and he started telling me. He said, I'm telling you something I've never told anyone, including my wife. And he says, I don't even know if I believe. I'm not even sure I have a relationship with God. I'm not even sure I'm saved. I don't even know what this means. And it was really traumatic because this guy came from a pedigree of missionaries, of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles who were all missionaries. And he was, the, he was the next one to carry the torch. He was the, 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 the next star in the making. And he was telling me all this stuff and realized that I, I really wasn't alone in this up and down sort of thing. And so I kind of started, what is it, what does it make us to, what does it mean to have a life in the spirit? 
And then there's all the questions that go along with that. Uh, you know, the questions from believers and non-believers. Uh, of of uh, the questions like, why are Christians so hypocritical? Uh, why do Christians hate so much? And uh, if Christians are supposed to have the Holy Spirit, then why isn't everybody virtuous? And the flip side of that is why are people outside of the Christian community sometimes are more virtuous than the Christians inside the community? And all these questions, questions are kind of rolling around your head. And so the question is, what is life in the Spirit? And we had an excellent devotional yesterday at Men's Breakfast. Oscar, thank you so much for that. Where he reminded us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of actually it was fitting right in to what we want to talk about this morning. And that how, do we, how does that life in the Spirit look? And what do we do with that? And, and how, are we, how do we move forward in this? Well, I want to look at uh, two young men this morning from the Old Testament, Elihu and Daniel. Uh, we've got one man who miscalculated the, the idea of the spirit life, and then one man who cultivated the spiritual life. And the first guy we want to look at is Elihu, uh, and I always tell, I used to tell my students that we actually probably learn more from the Bible characters who got it wrong than the ones who get it right. Well, we're going to look at first at the guy who got it wrong, okay, Elihu. Uh, he's he's a, a young man, and most of us know the story of Job. He comes out of the book of Job. I might have mentioned a, a couple weeks ago that I'm, I like listening to the scripture now. I've kind of discovered this new program, and I, can't, I mentioned it in the Connections letter. And we were going through Job, and so I'm listening to the Job, and I have to admit, it is really a long book. And it seems to go on and on and on and on. And, uh, but it kind of takes a different turn around three-quarters of the way through. If, uh, most of us know kind of the basic story of Job. It's this man who uh, was wealthy, he had everything going for him, and then he loses everything. He loses his land, he loses his flocks, he loses his livelihood, he loses his family. And uh, so he's kind of questioning, what, why did all this happen to me? And he's got these three friends that come around, and they start trying to explain things to him of why this happened, but it's just, it's just basically nonsense. It's just nothing. They, don't, they have nothing. They just basically berate him and, uh, and don't come up with anything. And then about three-quarters of the way through the book, this guy, Elihu, is introduced. And he's a young guy. And he says he's, he holds his tongue because he's young and he's going to let the, let the old guy speak first. And then all of a sudden he comes on there and he says, Then Elihu, son of Barakal of the Buzite, uh, of the family of Ram, became very angry. He was angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. With Job's three friends, he was also angry because he could not find the answer and so and declared Job guilty. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because the others were older than he, but when Elihu saw that the three men were no further reply, he became very angry. So if you haven't got it yet, he was mad. He was, he was pretty angry. So that's kind of what we have here. And he's right about one thing. He is right that wisdom doesn't come automatically with age. Just because you're an old guy doesn't mean you're wise, okay? It doesn't mean you're smarter than the young guys. And just because you're an older woman doesn't mean you're wiser than the younger women. It just doesn't come automatically. So he is right about that. He says, uh, but it is the spirit in people, the breath of the Almighty, that makes them understand. It is not the aged who are wise, nor the old men who understand what is right. And he did get that right. 
He is correct about that. And in Jewish thought, Philo, the, he was a Jewish theologian who wrote around the time of Jesus. Uh, he kind of lays out what Jewish thought is. In Jewish thought, they believe that when God breathed in the breath of Adam, he not only breathed in the physical breath for physical life, but he also breathed in a spiritual life. The spirit that is implanted into every person with the potential to live a virtuous life. Uh, as Christians today, we would probably call that the image of God. That everybody has the image of God, is created in the image of God. Well, Philo and Jewish thought is that the spirit breath was part of that, that they breathed into that. And, he's, and, and, and Elihu is saying, this is where wisdom really comes from. And he's right. He is right. But where he gets wrong, but where he goes wrong about this, this one thing, is that he, he, he says this spirit breath, and I'm going to call it spirit breath this morning, because as I mentioned before, that, that Hebrew word ruah can be translated breath, wind, spirit, any number of ways. It's a, one word that carries a lot of load on it. So I'm just going to call it the spirit breath this morning. The spirit breath does not guarantee someone is going to be wise, okay? He says age doesn't guarantee it. Well, the spirit breath doesn't guarantee it. It doesn't explain why some people are, are good and some people are mean. It doesn't explain why some people are kind and some people are cruel. It doesn't really explain that, and he's right. But this is where he goes wrong, for I am full of words, and my spirit within me forces me to speak. Inside, I am like wine bottled up. I am like the new wineskin, ready to burst. I must speak so that I can feel better. I will open my mouth so that I may answer. That's where he gets it wrong. It's me. I've got it. And yeah, he even goes on to admit that Job and I are made of the same clay, but I've got this special morsel of the Holy Spirit. I've got this special dose of the Holy Spirit. He's spoken to me, and I'm just about ready to burst here. And he says, I'm just about ready to blow up. And he sees the Holy Spirit as this sort of spontaneous combustion that comes out. And because he can't control himself, it must be the Holy Spirit. It must be the Spirit of God. It must be the Ruach. And that's where he goes wrong. It's not the same old... He, he kind of goes on to talk, and he, and he basically says the same old, same old that the other guys were saying. And... He's saying that because I cannot control myself, it must be the Spirit, when it really isn't. And we do sometimes think that the Holy Spirit gives us this sort of a, a physical sensation, maybe even a physical response, maybe twitching or goosebumps or, or, uh, or falling down. Well, for Elihu, it is this urge to give advice, his inability to shut up, basically. His, uh, he, instead of... Instead of encouraging Job, he basically berates and chides this already beleaguered man. Instead of giving him hope, he basically just beats him down. He's not, the compass that is guiding Elihu is, is not the spirit, it's his inflated ego. This is a man that's impatient, overconfident, and a prideful young man. Reminds me of my high school days. That we can't Shut up. If I can't shut up, then it must be the Holy Spirit. And this is where he went wrong. That it must be some kind of spontaneous combustion. And yeah, we're made of the same stuff, the same dust, but I have a special dose. And I can't keep it to myself. I have to say it. I have to give you advice. I have to give you a speech. I have to give you a sermon every Sunday morning. So... <laughs> 
That's Elihu. So what makes the difference between a man like Elihu and a man who is in the spiritual life? And I think the example is Daniel. Now, my exposure to Daniel came with a felt board Daniel. <laughs> and uh, in, in Sunday school with Mr. Hines, and my Sunday school teacher in the Methodist church. And for your younger folks, these were the precursors to um, uh, uh, computer graphics. So just in case you didn't know what those are. And most of us know the story of Daniel, that Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, came in and attacked Judah three times and uh, carried off captives. And finally, around 586, Jerusalem fell. And what he would do was typical of conquerors, they would take the brightest and the best, like Bill Negreen, like say, <laughs> the brightest and the best and the best looking. And, okay, the best, the best looking. And, and they took the best, and then they would groom them so that they could become uh, officials in the government. And so they took these four guys, and, the, and Daniel focuses in on these four young men from Jerusalem. To do that. And there's two things I want to mention here, two observations here. One is that, first of all, they lost all of their religious props. It looks like when Babylonia came, not only did they take away the people and destroy Jerusalem and sacked it, they took away all the religious articles, the, 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 the goblets, the plates, everything. And not only did they take it, they put it in the, he put it in the temple of his own God. And Jerusalem fell, the temple is destroyed. And you think, that's all those, all those religious items. And apparently God's okay with that. In fact, he kind of orchestrated it. And you, so you have all these religious props just destroyed right before their eyes. And it's humiliating. It's humiliating because not only is it the king that's defeated, the God of the king is defeated. And that's what it appears to be. But Daniel and his three friends, they realize that the people of God have to be the people of God whenever and wherever they happen to be. And I think that's a great lesson for us, that we are called to be the people of God wherever and whenever we happen to be, whether we have the religious props or not. Whether we have the great music or not, we are still called to be the people of God, wherever that may be. And what happens to Daniel is these extraordinary events happen in, this, in these stories. He, he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream about this huge statue. He interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream about this huge tree. He interprets this writing, this strange writing on the wall with his son Belshazzar, uh, his party is on the wall, and he interprets that. Uh, when Darius the Mede comes in to, and takes, takes over and, he's, and it, the new empire comes on the scene, uh, Daniel is uh, thrown into the lion's den because of the jealousy of some of his cronies. And then he's miraculously rescued from the lion's den. And all this happens. And it's incredible that all these things happen to him because he's in the right place. But not only do they lose the religious props, they also lose their identity. They're, they're told to be taught all the values and all the, all the theology of Babylonia, and they even changed their names. 
It's interesting that Daniel, who I assume wrote the book, I'm going to believe that he wrote the book, never calls himself Belteshazzar. He just always calls himself Daniel because he says Belteshazzar was named after his, uh, the Babylonian god. So he always refers to himself as Daniel. And they lose their identity in all this and lose their way of thinking, supposedly. And then they're going to feed them all this, this rich food, the, the meat and the, and the wine and, and all this stuff. And, and they, Daniel says, I don't want to be defiled by that. Now, why is he being defiled by the food? I, I think, I think, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but I think it's because this food must have been maybe offered to idols, perhaps, or it, maybe it's a religious uh, ritual that they go through with their idols, uh, with the, eating this food. Another possibility is that Daniel wanted to be in solidarity with the people of Israel. The people of Israel, the people of Judah are starving, and they're suffering. And Daniel knows that he's in the line of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, who also suffered with the people, and maybe he's, he's in solidarity with them. But regardless of the exact reason, it's clear that for Daniel to eat the food, he would be changing his loyalty. He would be declaring his allegiance to the Babylonian God instead of Yahweh. And he says, I can't do that. And so he strikes this deal with the guard. And it's really impressive how Daniel feels, with, feels sorry for the, the guard and other things. And it strikes a deal. So let's give it 10 days and see how it goes. And we know that it's okay, that he's healthy. He doesn't defile. He doesn't change his loyalties. And what's, what's amazing is this is the first step of a lifetime for Daniel. This, this sets the tone for the rest of his life. Now, he doesn't always appear. He, Daniel doesn't stay the young man that we see in the felt board, Daniel. Okay? He does get older. In fact, his life goes over three generations of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, his son, and then a new empire, two empires and three generations, Darius the Mede. And they see this life continuing on the same, same. He, gets this, he has this clear vision of who he is loyal to. And what's really interesting here is that he is in the society. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't retreat. And there's not a single word of judgment against his captors. He doesn't judge them. He just doesn't eat the meat. And I think this is so important for us that we live in a society that doesn't share our faith for the most part, but we don't withdraw. We don't retreat. We leave aside the judgmental words. We just don't eat the meat. We maintain our loyalty to Jesus Christ in spite of the society, in spite of where we are, whenever we are. We just don't eat the meat. And I just think this is remarkable. And you go through <clears throat> Daniel in this whole lifespan, and you see several things here in, uh, in chapter 4 uh, as he goes through his life that he has this, this, um, uh, this lifestyle that he's in it for the long haul. There's no momentary ambushes of the Holy Spirit like Elihu. You know, it's just this long haul. It's, he doesn't have this special dose of the Spirit. It's just a... He sees the Holy Spirit of the God's spirit breath as this continuous, perpetual pool of wisdom for him. That's how he sees it. It's a source of enlightenment and foreknowledge and, and knowledge in general. And he, 
And there's no this us versus them kind of a thing. I mean, we like to think of being uh, life in the Spirit as accomplishing things and lots of output and acquisitions. But for Daniel, it was just this rich pool of wisdom and insight that he had. Uh, just real quickly, in, in, um, just want to read a few verses here. Finally, Daniel came into his presence, and I told him the dream. And he called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and uh, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And he said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then you go on to, to chapter 5, uh, verse 11 and 12. Um, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. This man Daniel, whom the living king of Belshazzar was found to have a king mind and knowledge and understanding because of his excellent spirit. And then you go into in, in chapter 6, verse 3, and you see Darius saying the, saying the same thing, that he has this excellent spirit. This is a lot of spirit talk about Daniel. And did you notice who's noticing this? It's the foreigners. Whether through admiration or jealousy, it's the foreigners who recognize the spirit in him. They may call it the spirit of the gods, the spirit of the holy gods. They, know, they just know there's something different about this guy because he's in it in the long haul. And so Daniel teaches us something about God's spirit that Elihu misses. And that is that Daniel just sort of settles into the spirit. He kind of carves out space for the Holy Spirit to work. He's not, he's not uh, seeking spectacular events. Now, I still would like invigorating events with the Spirit. I still seek those. I still want to listen to the Holy Spirit speak to me, whether it's in images or talks or words. I take seriously when other people tell me I have a word from the Lord, I take them seriously. I've learned to take my dreams and my impressions seriously. But there's a difference here. That Daniel, I want to be like Daniel, who just kind of carves out this area for the Holy Spirit. He sort of just settles in because Daniel knows that there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to say, the Holy Spirit's upon me and, and I can't shut up. There are no shortcuts. That is this lifelong, long haul of carving out space for the Holy Spirit to work. It's this lifelong, long haul of settling in to the spirit breath of God. And that's where it comes from. That's the pool of wisdom and insight. So how does Daniel tap into this life in the, in the spirit? It's very, very simple. It's just a simple, tenacious, uh, single-minded faithfulness to God. That's it. Just a simple life of tenacious, single-minded faithfulness to God. Just a few lessons from Daniel and, uh, and Elihu. First of all, seek wisdom, not performance. Seek wisdom, not performance. There was lots of stuff going on in high school, and it was pretty mind-blowing. It was pretty wild, and, and, um, and you know, it caused my dad a lot of heartache uh, because he thought I was leaving, you know, becoming some weird person. And rather than that, just seek wisdom and not performance. Um, the Elihu's, the Elihu's of the world, they're the ones who seek the performance. They're the ones who, who, who bruise and batter people more than comfort them. 
they're the, the Elihu's of the world are the ones who chide the already beleaguered Job's of the world. Those are those people. They make the, the, they make the spectacular experience everything, the, the filling. But it's not inspired. It's not beneficial. It's, it's following the compass of our own egocentricity is what it is. Seek wisdom, not performance. Let those who are not Christians confirm whether or not we are living in the Spirit. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive. But when other people start recognizing it, then we know something is up. When they start seeking us, and they start seeking our wisdom and advice, they know that something is up. It's not like Elihu who feeds on self-validation, where he says, listen to me, uh, self, I'm self-proclaimed, I'm egocentric, I'm the, I'm the sage of the group, I'm the wise one of the group. Elihu claimed his own inspiration. But what if other people looked at us and said, this is, these people are living in the spirit. These people are living in the spirit. I mean, I look at the church overall and, and, and nationally and go, is the world looking at the, at the Christian church and are they looking at it and going, are they lumping us in with the Elihu's or do they lump us in with Daniel? And I think about Shepherd of the Valley. Are they lumping us in with the Elihu's of the world or are they lumping us in with Daniel? The one who knows us for the long haul. Let them confirm to us they may be out of jealousy. It may be out of admiration. They may attribute it to some other God. But they know that we, like Oscar's saying, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit because of a reason. Life in the Spirit is a communal discipline. It's not developed in a vacuum. I think it's really interesting this first chapter, every time Daniel is mentioned, all four men are mentioned. They all come together. It is not, not developed in a vacuum. The spirit, the life in the spirit helps us clarify, helps us see other things and, and know that, that it affects others. That spiritual formation is for the church, not just for the individual. As a church, we are to be conformed into the image of Christ, not just as individuals. As individuals, yes, but members of a community. And when we start getting in this competition, the spiritual competition that I was talking about when I was in high school, where you had these spiritual elites over here and people that are not quite ready over there, that sabotages our own spiritual life. When we start thinking we are the elite, it sabotages our own life in the spirit. We are in this together. We are in this together. Number four, develop a love for the world. Just don't eat the meat. For God so loved the world. And I've mentioned this before. Sometimes I, I talk to Christians and I feel like the verse said, God so hated the world. But God so loved the world. He's not talking just about nature as much as beautiful as that is. He's also talking about the people who live in the world. Develop a love for the world. Just don't eat the meat. Maintain your allegiance where it should be to Jesus Christ. And number five, life in the spirit is not a goal to be reached, but a path to accomplish God's will. 
It's not something we strive for to go or to reach like Elihu. It feels like he just kind of arrived and I can't, I can't shut up. I've got to speak. My, I'm like wineskins that are about ready to burst. I can't, I can't stop this. It's not that. It's a path. It's a path to accomplish the will of God. That means, that means that you and I have a common goal. We have a shared target to work toward, and that is to tend to God's spirit breath with care, and he will be a perpetual source of godly wisdom. We tend to the God's spirit breath with care. How do we do that? I think with, with um, a simple lifestyle. I think with a, a desire to learn, studying hard, and I think faithfulness and prayer. And we tend to that. We carve out that area in our life for the Spirit to work. Living simply, studying hard, and praying fervently. We carve that out for the Spirit. It is the long haul. And that will be this perpetual, continual pool of godly wisdom for us. That's life in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for people for people like Daniel and examples like Elihu. We hope he, we hope he got it together. <laughs> but we, uh, we pray that we follow the example of Daniel with patience and great care. That our allegiance to you will never falter. That we never, as the hymn says, never ever outlive our love for thee. In the name of Jesus, amen.